Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Risking Enchantment in 2019. I'm very excited this episode to be uh, co-hosting with my wonderful friend Chloe Collar. Hi everyone! Um, and probably the best way to start this is to just give a little introduction. Uh, if Chloe, you want to say who you are and sure. how we know each other. Um, yeah, so I'm Chloe and uh, I live with my husband in Cumbria in England and um, I know Rachel because we both did the same master's degree in Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies at the University of Nottingham and we were both in the Catholic Society there. Yeah, it was um, an incredible year for it was. both of us. Um, we made a lot of friends <clears throat> that year, so... It's we did. Shout out to you all! <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're definitely listening because we forced them to. Um, <laughs> we do. Um, and we are currently podcasting... I said in the last episode that I, I jokingly said I was going to take it on the road, but I am literally in a different country right now. Yeah. Because I am currently in Cumbria with Chloe. And we're just back from a trip with a group of friends where we went back to Nottingham and we stayed in a cottage on the grounds of Newstead Abbey, which was beautiful. Um, and it got me thinking about romanticism because Newstead Abbey was once owned by Lord Byron, who is kind of the sort of looming figure overall of romanticism. And... Also, as Chloe pointed out last night, the Lake District in Cumbria is also mm -hmm. one of the most important um, places in English Romanticism. So that's what inspired us to begin this January January <laughs> um, episode of the podcast. Um, I Yeah, I messed up the word January there because it's really, really early in the morning um, and we've been up even earlier than this. We have. Preparing. Um, and we're also pretty sick at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I will just apologise now for my throat. It's not in the best of health, but you'll have to forgive it. Um, and probably the same with mine at this point. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully we'll, we'll be coherent. We're really working on that. <laughs> um, but we're very excited to be doing this um, this episode of the podcast. So I think the first thing that I should probably do is give a little bit of a background about what is romanticism and uh, the kind of tropes and genres and um, aspects of it that you find particularly in the literature. Mm -hmm. um, so romanticism was a movement of literature, poetry, <coughs> music, um, painting, couple of uh, also approaches to education. Um, it was generally a cultural movement that began in the late 18th century and moved on into the mid uh, 19th century. Um, it began in Germany and then moved <coughs> across to France and then England. And it is one of those times of creative expression that has really molded our popular culture landscape, our um, conceptions of, of art and self-expression. So what romanticism is, I think people, it's, it can be quite tricky for people to get a grasp of it because the word romantic is so kind of 
firmly entrenched in modern culture as being specifically about um, romantic relationships as opposed to platonic relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, to an extent, an element of romanticism, but it's not really. Um, it The word romanticism comes from a medieval word, which still kind of lingers in the French roman, meaning novel. It's just it essentially just means stories, um, but in the in the medieval time, it, they specifically meant stories about adventures and knights and damsels in distress and yes, think King Arthur. Yeah, exactly. They're all romances, and so the romanticism of the eighteenth uh, and nineteenth century was actually. Um, it comes as a bit of a pushback against the scientific rationalism of the Age of Enlightenment. Um, it's a kind of odd combination because it is a very political and to a degree scientific movement, but it kind of it seems to be coming from a place of frustration where the world is reduced to um, a, a sort of scientism. And so the the romance authors and the romance poets were looking for something that was more to do with emotions and passions um, and that there is more to understand about the world than just scientism. And in the same way, they kind of were pushing against progress and industrialism um, and instead they turned to the natural world and they are looking at nature as a, as a force, as pretty much something to worship. Although the thing that um, romanticism worships the most is the imagination itself um, and the ability for man to express himself to higher higher planes. They kind of focus more, as we said, it kind of pulls a lot from the medieval and it's kind of one of the few movements that starts to um, place the medieval over the classical, which is not something you see that often. And that actually comes into why Chloe and I know a good bit about it, which is because we studied medieval studies. Um, the the romance period is actually in some ways a development of those themes that began in the medieval period. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the background. Like I said, that goes into some of the, the sort of um, recurring elements that you see in a lot of the literature. Exploration of nature, um, the revival of the medieval, a sense of looking back instead of looking forward. Um, and then there's a couple of other really, really important things. One is the transcendent and the sublime, uh, which is that, and it that's really closely linked with nature. So it's that idea that you can reach a state that is transcendent of your um, everyday life um, through your emotions and through your encounter with nature. And tied into that is the other one, which is the heroic individual. So it is looking at the individual as the agent of change and the agent of um, its own self-expression and the ability to um, reach the sublime, which is actually where it kind of comes into a bit of trouble. Well, there's a couple of elements. It comes into a bit of trouble with Catholics, which is that although it is about trying to reach the sublime, in some ways... they are trying to reach it without God. Um, there's a lot of atheism associated with Romanticism. Um, it's strongly linked with the French Revolution. Um, Percy Shelley, who is one of the big proponents of Romanticism, famously wrote um, an exposition called The Necessity of Atheism. 
Um, and weirdly, I was reading recently, which I found really interesting, one of the reasons why it kind of came into conflict with the church was that its desire to move away from reason, which is what I was saying about the scientism earlier, um, and that uh, John Henry Newman, or blessed John Henry Newman at the time, um, was he was concurrent with this and he was fighting against it because he was working a lot to show how the church can stand on its own reason and that knowing God or knowing a sense of spirit or um, the supernatural was not just about your feelings. I think we can have a lot of comparisons with modern life now which is that sense of spiritualism and it's how I feel and it's not about a concrete reality mm -hmm. that I can engage with so it's not necessarily particularly pro it's definitely not pro church and dogma in a lot of the writing um but it also has a bit it's interesting because it has a bit of a fascination with Catholicism because it it looks to the past it looks to the sort of both the past and the exotic in terms of like, particularly in the English romantics, what's not mm -hmm. English. So it looks to continental Europe and there's a lot of Catholicism there, to the past, which is a lot of Catholicism there. And it, in a way, it almost fetishizes the elements of Catholicism. Yes, Chloe, sometimes quite viscerally. Yeah, they kind of go in for a lot of gore yeah. and a lot of... Um, Sacrilegious description. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so to put it mildly <laughs> yeah and so I think a lot of Catholics can be a bit put off by this and they don't want to engage with it um, because the romantics seem very suspicious of Catholicism mm -hmm. but I think weirdly we can essentially kind of do a reverse on themselves and say well we can be wary of the, ro the romantics but we can be very interested in them too and pull what's interesting to us out of what they're talking about yeah absolutely and particularly because I said like I said their desire to reach the sublime is something that can actually be really linked with Catholicism and so there's a lot that we can learn and it's honestly, I mean, we're going to, I think we're going to specifically talk about literature in this particular podcast. We could do, mm -hmm. we could talk a lot about poetry. Um, and obviously there's also painting and music, <coughs> but I think we're going to focus on books for this one. Um, there's also a particularly gothic bent to the, yes, the works that we've chosen. Yeah. So to just clarify, um, gothic literature is a subset of romantic literature and to an extent those two terms are used relatively interchangeably um, and gothic is essentially romanticism but with a bit more of the macabre it's a bit yes. more of the horror and the horror and terror and terror and it also to me is a genre that contains some of the most iconic and most um, culturally important works of literature um, and the ones we're going to be talking about will be familiar to most people. Mm -hmm. Frankenstein, Dracula, all of those. But it also contains all of those really... It, in some ways, it was the first genre of trash novels. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you get that in Jane Austen, where you see all of these um, young women reading what is considered trashy gothic novels at the time, and they're all about damsels in distress who get kidnapped by evil and looming dark men yeah. and brought off to creepy castles. Where they fall down trapdoors and were met by vampires. Exactly. That kind of business. Um, so it's a fun kind of genre because it encapsulates those two elements. Yeah, I'm an absolute sucker for <laughs> the gothic novels. <laughs> they're brilliant. Um, I really don't think I've read enough of the trashy stuff, though, to be fair. No, there's uh, it varies a lot. 
I mean, the plots are very similar, but the sort of feeling mm-hmm. of the different novels varies a lot. Phoebe, who I'm sure you've heard on the previous podcasts, um, has been working her way through, I think, is it The Mysteries of Adolfo? Oh, is she really? That's quite quite the undertaking. Yeah, she's been really struggling, and she's a very fast reader, so uh-huh. she's been she's been really struggling with the, the, the swooning ladies and the pearl-clutching. That's kind of all they do. Yeah, pretty yeah. Much. But... Yeah, we're going to talk about it because I think, especially for Catholics, um, and obviously for anyone reading, but there is so much to be taken on board with what's discussed in some of these um, Gothic novels. There's really a lot that can be really edifying. And the first one that I'm going to talk about was honestly a really profound experience for me to read, which was Frankenstein. Um, The books that I'm going to talk about are mainly the sort of famous monster novels, And I think the thing that I find most fascinating about them is that they're so famous and they're so well known and they're so completely misunderstood. I feel like everyone is getting these monsters, not just secondhand, but thirdhand. Um, So the books I'm going to talk about are Frankenstein, uh, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Dracula. And I know for a fact, I know for a fact that my main experience of getting the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when I was younger was through a Looney Tunes, Tweety and Sylvester cartoon in which Tweety Bird (laughs) drinks a chemical formula and turns into a hulking, angry version of Tweety Bird. Oh my goodness, I think I saw that as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, and you know, I don't think I've ever seen, so like the image of Frankenstein is the sort of hulking, grunting, green, square-headed man, Mm -hmm. is from the Boris Karloff films, and I think also from the stage plays, but it's not particularly accurate to the books. But I never even saw those. I saw, like, Young Frankenstein, which itself was a parody of those movies, so I'm not even getting the second-hand version, I was getting the, like, parody of the second-hand version. Amazing. So... Yeah, I just think whenever you, whenever I come to read these books, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so different to anything I read or experienced before in terms of what those characters actually are. I think the closest one is Dracula. I think close the Dracula was the one that I kind of mm-hmm. was the most correct about because he's the one that's actually sort of straightforwardly evil. Mm-hmm. But even still, I was kind of really blown away by Dracula. Um, but I'm going to talk about Frankenstein first, because that was, um, I studied it in university in as part of a class on romantic literature, so that's very mm-hmm. convenient. But it really was um, a, a really powerful experience. And I think you're you're probably even more familiar with it than I am. Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, I did it at A-level, wow. and it was kind of my first introduction to the gothic and having read it I was completely sold on both it and the genre yeah and it remains one of my favorite books of all time um I've read uh, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde mm-hmm. uh I'm not as familiar with it yeah. as you are I flipping love Dracula Chloe was the one who convinced me to read Dracula so and it's one of my proudest achievements yes um <laughs> and I'm also going to chip in Um, As well as talking about those novels, I'm going to chip in with um, some information about Matthew Lewis's The Monk. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the villain of that piece, although not actually a monster, is sufficiently monstrous Mm -hmm. to be tied in with Frankenstein's monster and Dracula. 
Yeah. I think I think what's so interesting about monsters in romantic literature is the fact that they focus so much on the heroic individual and how that can be both a really good thing or a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about Mary Shelley is that she is part of a sort of lineage. She's the sort of ultra romantic. Her both of her parents is it William Goodwin? Godwin. Uh, <coughs> yeah, sorry. And uh, Mary Wollstonecraft were early figures who kind of paved the way for romanticism and were early political figures. And then she was married mm-hmm. to Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was, again, like I said earlier, uh, one of the most important figures in it. Um, but in some ways, I think she is the one that is that has the greatest legacy in that Frankenstein is so ubiquitous still. Yes. Um but I don't I don't know enough about her own stance on politics and morality and religion. But I do know that Frankenstein is a specifically moral book. Um in the preface at the beginning, she talks about not being disinterested in the morals and the way that her readers experience the story. Mm-hmm. And so and even within her books, um, they sort of a lot of gothic novels work this way, but there's a framing device where it's a story being told by someone who's telling a story by someone who's telling a story. Mm-hmm. And at almost every stage, the the person telling the story says, I'm only telling you this so that you can learn and you can, you can make better choices than I did. So the thing that I wanted to pull out about Frankenstein is the the nature of the monster and how it is kind of emblematic of what happens when you don't have a just, a good, or a merciful God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just going to take a look at my notes here, because I definitely have some quotes pulled out. Yeah, so, like, Victor Frankenstein creates his monster, and essentially immediately abandons it. And when the monster eventually finds him, they have this, like, deep conversation, um, but Victor Frankenstein is unable to bring himself to either love or show mercy to his own creation. And there's this horrible sense that the second he creates the monster, he's in this spiral where he can't he can't make any more good decisions because he's already created something out of his own ego and out of it's the the monster itself is a, an odd combination of Victor Frankenstein's ego to say that he can create something this like to make this advancement in scientific discovery, mm-hmm. but also the fact that he he makes it out of like dead and you know festering body parts that yes. he combines them together to make something new. So there's there is something inherently broken about the monster itself, but in the story he doesn't begin as being angry and evil. No, not at all. He begins as being someone who's looking for love mm-hmm. and looking for acceptance and just continually doesn't find it. It's very sort of childlike. Yeah. Yeah, we do see it, we do get the monster story where he shows how he learns how to speak and everything. Mm-hmm. So like the first experience Victor has of his monster is to see it and just be horrified and run away. And there's a quote later in the book where the monster says there is love in me, the likes of which you've never seen. There is rage in me, the likes of which should you should never escape. If I am not satisfied in one, I will indulge the other. Which is such a powerful idea that if we cannot express ourselves <coughs> in love, we will switch to another mode of expression. Yes. 
And then, like I said, it's also, I think, even more importantly than that, the monster spends so much of the book trying to communicate with Victor and to reconcile himself to his creator and to make himself appealing to his creator. Um, and there's this real back and forth where he does that and then Victor is kind of unsettled by him and then he gets angry. I I was reading an excellent article about it, um, I, which I believe was in Dappled Things, which was talking about how this is an example of what happens when we cannot commune with our creator. If God didn't let us approach him, mm -hmm. that we would be in this constant state ourselves. So the quote is, like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence, but his state was different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of God, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous. By the especial care of this creator, he was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of a superior nature. But I was wretched, helpless and alone. Wow. It almost speaks to a sort of like deistic view of the world. Yeah. Of just being created. No one's, you know, you're not perfect. And you're abandoned you're just... after the moment of your creation, essentially. Absolutely. And there's no, it shows the necessity for a personal um, and an incarnation mm -hmm. that there is a person that you can encounter who created you and who wants to interact with you and actually like acquire knowledge from which is so interesting because the the monster essentially um acquires the ability to speak and understand by watching other people but yes. he's watching from the outside he's not interacting with them and it's sort of a heartbreaking um watching from the outside as well yeah. like um where he's looking through this little window at this family yeah and he's described um, as the demon at the casement like that's what he appears yeah. to be and all he is trying to do is just learn how people love and it's so heartbreaking because Mary Shelley really lets you linger with this family for a long time and mm -hmm. she just has the monster describe their daily life and how much he loves them and how much he esteems them and how much he wants to be a part of them and then you, you're you kind of rooting for him to go and, and talk to them and, and be with them. And you almost believe it. And yeah, you're, you're like, I, I, I think they'll see him, I think they'll love him mm -hmm. and then he does and they're horrified and they run away mm -hmm. and they never come back and it's it's just so heartbreaking. And he doesn't really know why. Yeah. He's not quite sure why he's so abhorrent yeah. to so many people who see him, and particularly uh, Victor Frankenstein, who created him. Yeah. He has this real sense of pathetic loneliness, and there's this really heartbreaking issue where he's asking Victor Frankenstein, you can leave me alone, it's fine, if you don't want to have anything to do with me, but make me a companion, make me an Eve. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Frankenstein kind of goes back and forth on this like yes it's the compassionate thing to do but then he's essentially creating a race of these monsters that have so much power and will probably also feel the lack of uh, communion with their creator yeah. and like I said there's that sense that he can't make a good decision in that in that situation but it's the it's the flaw of his own pride the pride that he wanted to be this creator and this scientific innovator but he doesn't actually want the responsibility of it. Yeah. Um, and then the last point I was going to make was actually that, to me, Frankenstein is one of the most 
pro-life books that I've ever read. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's not surprising that Mary Shelley wrote it because she was so surrounded by death. Her own mother died giving birth to her and she in turn had many children die um, either in childbirth or or Mm -hmm. in early infancy. Mm -hmm. And you can just feel this sense that she has of life itself being worth preserving and the monster again says and he he just has this endless stream of cruelty shown to him and this is not to say like if you read the books that that's absolutely true he then does monstrous things he kills innocent people and Mm -hmm. he conducts himself in ways that are deliberately trying to hurt other people so it's not just that no we never like the monster is really victor frankenstein the point is that they're both in their own ways monstrous and there is a duality there um, but it's not just that one was one was nice and the other was not. No. Um, but he has this quote where he says, Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me and I will defend it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there is no situation that they get to that he says that life isn't important and that even though it is only hardship and even though it's difficult and even mm-hmm. though nobody loves me, I want to preserve my own life. Yes, and he goes to quite the extents to do that, even yeah. though uh, you you might even assume that he wouldn't really value his own life because nobody else does, but yeah. he does have that intrinsic knowledge of the value of life. And even Frankenstein, him, the Victor Frankenstein, they have this thing where they're trying to hunt down each other and potentially kill each other, but they never seem to actually be able to manage it no or even bring themselves to want to manage it yes yeah i it, it's an incredible book and i really mm-hmm. enjoy it i don't know if you have any other points that you'd like to bring up about it um nope nope <laughs> <laughs> well then i'm gonna move on to strange case of dr jekyll and mr Hyde. okay because i think that's another really good example of a dual nature good link um, like yeah it. exactly and like I said, for a long time, my only real knowledge of the story was from Looney Tunes cartoons or parodied versions. And I think it's very easy to dismiss the idea that the sort of conceit of the story, oh, it's a man and he takes a potion and he becomes an evil man mm-hmm. and he it allows him to do all his evil things. Mm-hmm. And in some ways that's become a fairly blasé notion. But there's a particular Catholic writer who was a staunch defender of Robert Louis Stevenson who wrote it and the idea that it was more profound than people were willing to give it uh, credence to. So there's a quote here where he says, "Um, From time to time, those anonymous authorities in the newspapers who dismiss Stevenson with such languid grace will say that there is something quite cheap and obvious about the idea that one man is really two men and can be divided into the evil and the good. Unfortunately for them, that does not happen to be the idea. The real stab of the story is not the discovery that one man is two men, but in the discovery that the two men are one man. After all the diverse wandering and warring of those two incompatible beings, there is still one man born and one man buried. Jekyll and Hyde have become a proverb and a joke, but only it is a proverb read backwards and a joke nobody really sees. The point of the story is not that man can cut himself off from his conscience, but that he cannot. Well, that was very well expressed, Rachel. Who was it who wrote that then? (laughs) That was Chesterton. Shocking! (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
And yeah, that's, to me, that's the real intrigue that Mm -hmm. um, in some ways we all believe that a truly evil bent within ourselves would be incompatible with the good part of ourselves, Mm -hmm. but that's not true. And I think my, like my favorite quote, the one that I love coming back to for this story is a quote where he, where Jekyll says, after becoming Hyde and after allowing himself, um, and for those who don't know the story, essentially he has created this compound that he takes, which transforms him into Hyde and allows him to indulge in all of the illicit activities that his conscience was stopping him from doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But essentially he kind of hopes that by being a different person, it won't impact his good side. Yes. But it becomes harder and harder. And he has this quote, I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory, the spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. Yes, it's the sort of, the notion of trying to entirely separate the good parts of you from the yeah. bad parts of you, which which is what he tries to do. Yeah. And, uh, spoiler, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. It shows that kind of, the sense that the more we indulge in evil, the less we are able to separate ourselves from it or yes. to pull away from it. Um, and that it's, it, like, to me, that, that kind of almost reeks of Echadia, the spiritual side of me a little drowsed. Mm. That we're numbing our our spiritual side the more we indulge in evil. That we can less recognise what we are doing. We are less able to separate ourselves from what it is. And we're less able to move ourselves, like it says, to move to begin penitence. Yes. Yeah. So the sort of the activeness is to do with the the animalistic and the evil side. And then the spiritual side of him is just kind of a bit lazy at this point. And so it's difficult to move against the animalistic side. Yeah, and then and I'm going to come back to the rest of Chesterton's quote, which is following on from what he said earlier, but I think is so interesting is that when we are in that situation, that's when Satan can trap us. Um, and because in the story, essentially, he's using a particular compound and it stops working, so he or he runs out. And when he tries to make it again, he finds that it doesn't work and that there must have been some imperfection in the original compounds that he used that he can't replicate. And he he begins to get stuck in Mm -hmm. the side of Mr. Hyde. Um, And so in this part, Chesterton is responding to another author called E.F. Benson, who I would say also writes very excellent ghost stories. But Chesterton says, he says scornfully that he... It would have done just as well if Jekyll had taken a blue pill. It seems odd to me that anyone who seems to know so much about the devil as the author of Colin should fail to recognise the cloven hoof in the cloven spirit called up by the Jekyll experiment. That moment in which Jekyll finds his own formula fail him, though an accident he had never foreseen, is simply the supreme moment in every story of a man buying power from hell. The moment when he finds the flaw in the deed. Such a moment comes to Macbeth and Faustus and a hundred others, and the whole point is that nothing is really secure, least of all a Satanist security. The moral is that the devil is a liar, and especially a traitor, that he is more dangerous to his friends than his foes. Absolutely. Which will uh, 
shockingly be revisited when I start talking about the monk. Yes. Because that happens to someone else. Yeah. they. I think in Romanticism there is that... Like I said, in Frankenstein there's that sense where you've gone too far. And, yes. And that it's so hard to come back from that. Yeah. Um, he mentions um, Faustus, uh, Dr. Faustus, and um, yeah... There's always this sort of slightly lame aspect to a bargain with the devil when yeah. someone, you know, is willing to sell their soul for something kind of naff. Yeah. And it, it's never like, you know, oh, eternal glory or power or anything. And then um, in Faustus's case, he asks for 24 years to, you know, go around the world, do what he likes. Um, but it is 24 years. And he never sort of thinks, oh, what about when I get to the end of the 24 years? I wonder what will happen then. Yeah. He just sort of ploughs on sort of blindly. And again, here, like, um, he never thinks, oh, what if, what if I can't make this compound again? Yeah. Or in Frankenstein, like, it's so baffling when you're reading it that he literally never thinks about what happens in the one minute after he creates life. Mm -hmm. He's so, like, blinkered about, like, I could physically do this, mm -hmm. that he never thinks, okay, and then when you do, what happens? Mm. Um, it's funny, because it does seem to be, like, a recurring theme that they just don't think beyond their desire yeah, and the consequences of it, and then what they're going to have to deal with the second after it's it's achieved. Yeah, I love it. And then, which kind of brings me to... Um, the last one that I'm going to talk about, which is Dracula. And actually, this ties in really well. Although it's less a theme of Dracula, but as a Catholic reading Dracula, I think it's a really strong experience, which is that throughout Dracula, you have all of these nice, good Protestants coming <laughs> up against a supernatural evil force. And the only thing that they have to protect themselves is, like, Catholic acc accoutrements. Yes! Um, and they never seem to question that. They never like. They never no. go further and go. Oh well, maybe there's something in this. They're all kind of scared of it. Yeah. But implicitly trusting in it, and kind of because they think we've literally got no hope. Yeah. This is what we're trusting in, but at the same time, we're terrified of it. Like, yeah. there's there's two um, sections of Dracula that really stick out to me in that way, and I imagine you're about to talk about them. So yeah. I might not jump I've in. Got, I've got a, a big quote here, which is it comes at the start, so there's a lot at the end. Mm -hmm. But at the start, Jonathan Harker, who's the lawyer who gets sent to Dracula's castle, He's on his way there and he has this huge feeling of dread and it like it's getting spookier and creepier and this old woman has given him a crucifix and he is a good Protestant so he doesn't believe that um, sacramentals have any value but as the story goes on he's relying more and more on this crucifix and it's so funny because it's so obvious that they just don't want to engage with the Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I will give a heads up that Dracula is a fantastically good book for using Catholic elements, but in the wildest ways and without <laughs> understanding them at all. Um, so the quote is, Bless that good, good woman who hung the crucifix around my neck, for it is a comfort and a strength to me whenever I touch it. It is odd that a thing which I have been taught to regard with disfavour and as idolatrous should, in a time of loneliness and trouble, be of help. Is it that there is something in the essence of the thing itself, or that it is a medium, a tangible help in conveying memories of sympathy and comfort? Sometime, if it may be, I must examine the matter to try and make my own mind up about it. And he literally, like, never, never questions. Does. He never questions it again. I actually forgot that he'd, like, resolved within his, within his mind to yeah. look into this and then just 
doesn't. Yeah. That's hysterical. Yeah, because he's just like, oh, this is this is actually powerful and helpful. I'll think about it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then just doesn't. Yeah, and like it gets even further because then towards the end they're they're doing all kinds of things. So Van Helsing is using every Catholic item at his disposal to the point where he I, I, you can't see me but I'm putting it in inverted commas gets a dispensation to grind up consecrated hosts to put in like cement to block up a tomb yeah um uh, which I mean I think it, I, as far as I know Bram Stoker was married to a Catholic and I don't uh-huh. know whether she would have been able to give him a bit more information also you know the story better than I do so please correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. am I wrong in thinking that you know the way Van Helsing keeps leaving yeah is that because he, ha- he stoker thinks that he has to go all the way back to is it the netherlands <laughs> to get a consecrated host <laughs> i literally never thought of that because he keeps leaving to go back home he does he has yeah. to like travel abroad and then he comes back with this special consecrated host and i'm like is that just like a consecrated host that you could get at any catholic church I mean, like, maybe he needed to go home to get his, and yeah. I say, again, in inverted commas, special dispensation. Um, but, yeah. I mean, that would be hysterical. And <laughs> I think it's probably the right answer, actually. Because yeah. he does just keep going. And it's at the most infuriating times. Like, yeah. well, everything's ticking along. Van Helsing's here. Oh, we're in mortal peril. Oh, he's gone. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he's he's left these sort of slightly floundering but well-meaning people to try and deal with stuff. Yeah. But I think I find I, honestly I find it quite endearing. Um, I really enjoy it. I love it. I, think I it's absolutely really funny. love it. But like I said, none of them ever seem to have that moment where they go, "Oh well, then maybe this has some truth in it." And I mean, maybe it's because it's in a story about supernatural things. But mm. in Dracula, there is that sense that there is a real presence of evil. Mm-hmm. That evil has a supernatural element, and that the only thing that can counteract this is the supernatural transcendent element of Catholicism. I think it's it's sort of true within people generally, though. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know you see it in films and you read it in books, but I'd be willing to bet if someone thought that their house was haunted, yeah. they wouldn't go to the Baptist church down the road. No. They would try and get hold of a Catholic priest because they've seen The Exorcist and they've yeah. seen all this stuff. In fact, I think they, we, we're big fans of the Fountains of Carrots podcast. And yes, they we had, Eleanor Bird Nicholson mm-hmm. on, who has recently written, and it, like, I got it for my birthday, it's on my bedstand, <laughs> I cannot wait to read it, it's a, um, it's a book called A Bloody Habit, which is about a Dominican monk who's also a vampire slayer, and I think it was um, the author's dream to sort of put to right the sort of erroneous Catholic elements of the Dracula story. Amazing. Um, so I'm so excited to read that, but I think she says that as well, like you don't call pastor john you get the catholic priest with his holy water and his power of christ compels you absolutely and i think i think that's a really important point and i think it's also an important point why you should read these books because i think there's there's two dangers at the moment and there's we do need to be wary of both of them there's a tendency to say that there isn't a supernatural evil and that there isn't a need to have a religion that extends beyond um, maybe like a personal uh, relationship with Jesus and a few kind of private interior prayers mm-hmm. um, but that you know we, we're the church militant and that there is a war going on and it, it's a war that we can't see and that we have to 
uh, engage with it and that Catholicism is has the equipment to do that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, and which is a real problem with the romantic, romantic movement of the time, which is that sense of dabbling in spiritualism and occultism and becoming sort of obsessed with it and um, going too far the other side. Which, yeah. But like we said, if you're reading these stories carefully, you're seeing that those kinds of decisions can put you into a position where you can't make a good decision. Now, obviously, as Catholics, we believe that everyone is, has an opportunity for redemption and anyone can come back and receive reconciliation from God. But there is a chain of events that can feel very inescapable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dracula is kind of, in some ways, the zenith of this Catholic idea. I was um, reading an excellent article from Karen Ullo, who's another Catholic author who has written a vampire book, um, but this was in Dappled Things. I think the, ar- the article was called The Catholicity of Monsters. Um, and Sounds she- up your street. Yeah, I know. It's really up my street. Um, but she was saying that uh, about Dracula and being the kind of number one example of this um, and that, that vampires are engaging in an anti-sacrifice and an anti-Eucharist. Vampires do what Catholics do. They drink blood in order to achieve eternal life. Dracula, who is the apocalyptic antichrist, who comes to collect souls and set them up an alternative eternity to that promised in the New Testament. Yeah. And she was then making the point that it's important that Mina Harker, Jonathan Harker's wife, is the one who kind of takes on the Christ role. Now she's forced into it because um, Dracula starts drinking her blood, but that she... Um, has that sense of sacrificing herself and for the good and doing it out of love and not hate. Yes, I'm a big fan of of Mina. I've had I've had many the argument with people who think she's just a husband secretary. She's so much more than that. I know. I I fly the flag for Mina. Well, since Dracula is setting people up for an alternative eternity, and I've been speaking for what feels like. <laughs> An eternity. Um, perhaps, Chloe, you'd like to jump in with your excellent okay. recommendations. Well, now is the moment to lower your standards. But here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about The Monk by Matthew Lewis. Not the bloke who plays Neville Longbottom, but in fact Matthew Lewis. <laughs> Of the sort of late eighteenth century. I would also say that as a like a Christian and a Catholic, when you're reading about romanticism, it gets a bit confusing between C.S. Lewis, who wrote a lot about romanticism, mm. and Matthew Lewis. Yes, you just he, you just, you just Lewis. Lewis. <sighs> Very different people. Very. <laughs> so the monk, um, in classic Gothic novel fashion, is set in eighteenth century Madrid in a Capuchin monastery. Um, so before you go anywhere else, we're definitely in Catholic land here. Yes. Um, I mean, I think we were in Catholic land by the title, The Monk. <laughs> You're not wrong, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, hmm, the main character is this monk called Ambrosio, which despite what various book covers would have you believe, is a young, very attractive monk who is an incredibly charismatic speaker, he preaches very well at Mass, mm-hmm. and he's supposed to be a good confessor. And he gradually, although he wasn't really great to start with, but he gradually, through the novel, becomes the most 
obscene monster. And it's, I mean, it's, it's quite a disgusting book, you know. Chloe has been <laughs> trying to convince me to read this book because she says, and I quote, it's one of my favourite books. But every time I see her pick it up, she reads a bit and goes, oh, I always forget how disgusting this is. It's really not nice. Like, there were some quotes that I wanted to pick out to read on the podcast, but guys, I just can't do it to you. It's it's grim. <laughs> it's really, you know, disgusting, quite literally. Um, so, I mean, it begins with him being this incredible um, preacher and within confession this young nun confesses to him that um she's pregnant and he classic non-catholic writing about catholicism breaks the seal of the confessional tells the prioress who has her dragged to a dungeon to die so starts off he's not your favorite guy mm-hmm. um but it gradually becomes worse and worse and Ends with rape and murder and incest and all this lovely stuff that everybody's always a big fan of. And that comes up in a lot of gothic novels. It's almost a trope. But um, I was looking up um, various ideas about the Catholicism within the monk. And it's generally considered to be a very anti-Catholic novel. But I read The Monk and Frankenstein and Dracula um, when I wasn't yet Catholic, but I was attending Catholic church with my now husband, um, and I sort of began reading it when I was about 16. And the the Catholicism within it really appealed to me. I was like, oh, that's what I see at mass, and then you know, they're grinding it up for a, a vamp to sort out a vampire's yeah. grave and this kind of stuff. And um, it, it really appealed to me. And through the monk, there's all this, this Catholic stuff, um, and... <laughs> But it's considered extremely anti-Catholic because Ambrosio and his sort of demise into um, ultimate sin is supposed to be forced upon him by the strictness of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, so I found an I found an article which uh, isn't my favourite, as as Rachel found out before this, um, but. Uh, the lady writing this article attributes Ambrosio's demise to um, the smells and bells of Catholic mysticism and superstition. And simultaneously quotes, Ridiculous religious prejudices. Oh, blush, Ambrosio. Blush at being subjected to their dominion. Throw from you these terrors and dare to be happy. And that, that quotation comes from a character in the book who turns out to be an instrument of Satan, a demon in disguise, who is there pleading with Ambrosio to reject his Catholic faith and just enjoy himself. Yeah. Which he then does. (laughs) And that leads to his demise. So really, what is thought generally by people to be Catholicism, Catholicism... causing people to fall into sin is actually either Catholicism usurped into something very um, authoritarian in the worst way. So there's a prioress who uses Catholicism to exact her own cruelty upon people and says, I'm allowed to do this because I'm the prioress and this is what the Catholic Church says, therefore 
I'll condemn you to death and you can be crushed and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, or there's literally these people like Ambrosio, who's said to be the strictest and most devout monk in the order, mm-hmm. apart from chastity. Oh. And then it very much goes to apart from most of other things as well. Yeah. Um, but it's his rejection of the Catholicism and of the very strict rules of his order that actually causes his demise. Yeah. I think perhaps, because I don't think Matthew Lewis himself was attempting to be pro-Catholic. No. Um, but you're right that they sort of almost fall into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in some ways, I think it's because the, I, I guess the demand of Catholicism or more the aspiration of Catholicism is so great. Like it's to be a saint mm-hmm. that when you get it wrong... It, you get it so wrong. Yes. Um, and I think even, like, I, I've been reflecting on this in terms of the the incredible and awful abuses within the Catholic Church at the moment, which, I mean, in our own shame, actually managed to sort of reflect what's happening in the gothic horrors of the monk. It's... Um, it's ve- there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, it's which I, would actually be a really interesting kind of uh, one to draw out and tease out mm-hmm. a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um but there is that sense that um, almost when it's good, it's the best, and when it's bad, it's the worst, mm-hmm. um, in a way, because it aspires so high that you're reaching that. And and like Chesterton said, that there's that kind of satanic element that seeks to pull you down just in the moment of your hubris, that mm-hmm. like you think that you can reach this. But I guess what the rom- the romantics were kind of missing was the sense that the reliance on grace and the reliance of on, on God's help and mm-hmm. not just your own ability to achieve perfection. Yes. Um, and that, yeah, there's that kind of inward looking as opposed to outward looking um, in the in the heroic individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's really interesting. Maybe you'll convince me to read The Monk. <laughs> yes, I mean, there's... There's your classic sort of dashing hero who mm-hmm. runs in at the end and actually doesn't do that well, but anyway, he, he does save most people. Kind <laughs> 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 of has a big whoops, but never mind. Um, and there's the sort of clandestine meetings of dodgy monks and nuns yeah. and this kind of thing. And there's a good bit of quite visceral horror, like literally repugnant yeah. horror. And it is very religious paralleled. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's in some ways certain people's suffering looks very Christ-like and yeah. sacrificial and other people it's just a real twisting of of Catholicism and you can just tell like there's a, a quote here from a guy called David Salter who says that the monk assumes a readership that is modern, enlightened, English and Protestant and it understands the Gothic world in which the story takes place as one which is medieval, barbaric, superstitious, and above all, Catholic. Yeah, and there's certain that's things. Really key, isn't it? Yes, it's it's really really key. There's certain things in it that um, a sort of um, Protestant view or a view of someone who is a bit wary of Catholicism. Yeah, um, they they pick out the main things. So. Um, you know, seeing the images of saints as being idolatrous, or um, the looking at the Virgin Mary, and it really twists it with Ambrosio. So he really looks at Mary with with lust and with possession. Yeah, and it makes us uncomfortable reading for a Catholic. But you can just see how that's a really easy thing to twist with 
um, sort of a love of and adoration of Mary from a pious monk. Yeah. And you just put an evil twist on that and then it becomes something really abhorrent. Yeah. And that's what they go with. Yeah. But again, it's that twisting of Catholic truth rather than Catholic truth is this. Yeah. And I think there's something in it. So like in the romantic period, like I said, nature plays a really big role. And in my mind, there's a huge amount of like, that's where the, the idea of like pathetic fallacy comes out where mm -hmm. the, the world around you reflects how the inner state of your soul, where, um, you know, there's like, if you're having a moment of intense crisis, you're probably at the top of a mountain when it's raining. Um, but in a way, that's why Catholicism works so well in this, because it's the outward demonstration of an inward spirituality. Nice. Yeah. Never so, thought of that. It's really great. Um, because everything is so outwardly expressive that the Catholicism works that way, because you have all of these, like she said, bells and smells. Mm -hmm. You have these these kind of public um, expressions of yes. your faith. Very as physical. A, as opposed to a, a more Protestant, private and personal mm -hmm. expression of faith. Um, but yeah, there's that. I, I really like that the idea that they just don't, they, they, they kind of really intrigued by the Catholicism, but they really don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But actually in the, in the podcast that we were talking about um, with Fountains of Carrots, um, Eleanor Berg Nicholson makes a really, really good point, which I'd never really thought about, which is that it's almost the don't think about pink elephants trope, which is that these Gothic novels actually brought in some more favor with Catholicism because mm -hmm. people were more familiar with it because they were reading about it and because they knew knew vaguely in a sort of approximate term these expressions and these um, ideas made it less other yeah strangely yeah which I think is really interesting that it and I, I unfortunately I didn't get time to read it but there was a really interesting article that I glanced over before this this um, podcast which was talking about how gothic and romantic literature con contributed towards uh, political movements for Catholic emancipation at the time, which is really, really, really interesting, interesting because there is obviously a genuine and needed focus on romanticism's link with the French Revolution, which was kind of a low point, mm -hmm. certainly for Catholicism in France, um, but that there were other elements of it as well. Um, so I think what we're saying in total is that while there are definitely elements to be kind of wary of or to be looked at critically, mm -hmm. there is so much to be learned and so much to be taken from some of these great gothic and romance novels. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And yeah, we're almost at an hour, so that means that oh we, gosh. it's flown by. Um, probably not for you because you're sitting on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be all right. <laughs> So I think the only thing we have left to do is to ask our final question of the podcast, mm -hmm. which is, tell us about something that you're enjoying at the moment. Well, Rachel, I have really been enjoying of late, and I, I watched it, it's a film, and I watched it twice, but it's sort of just been lingering in my mind for uh, a month or so, and that is You've Got Mail. With, oh, I love that movie. I know! <laughs> it's uh, Tom Hanks and, and Meg, Meg Ryan. Ryan. It's my favourite romantic comedy. Yeah. Romantic in a very different sense. With a small R. Yeah, that's, the, that's how you can tell the difference. When we're talking about romanticism, it's the capital R romanticism. Yeah, that's um, when we're being highbrow. Yes. 
and uh, <laughs> you've got mail. But I I knew this film um, as a, a child or a young teenager, and I used to watch it a lot, and I quite liked it in the same way I quite liked a lot of those type of films. But then I watched it again recently, um, and I really appreciate so much more about it. Like, it's shot just beautifully. It's really yeah. artistic in the way it's shot. And you don't often get that with, um, with like, rom-com movies. Yeah. And it's just, it's really witty and joyful. And yeah. obviously there's the little bookshop, which, which is very appealing. It is very appealing. Even the big bookshop. Like, I know, obviously, we're rooting for Meg Ryan's little bookshop. Yeah. But, like, even Tom Hanks's big corporate bookshop manages to look relatively appealing. It, it does. It does. And the characters are just so, like, whimsical. And even the ones that, like, the bad characters are just hysterical. Yeah. Like, there's some line, like, one liner that you can just quote and quote and quote. Yeah. But and then Tom Hanks is such a troll in it because he's just like I won't spoil the plot, but he knows something that Meg Ryan doesn't, and boy does he milk that. Yeah, he just winds her up, and she's always thinking like, "What's he on about? Like he can't possibly know." And that yeah, kind of thing. I think I think um, you've got mail is a really good example of a rom com done well. Like it's it not is. crude, it's not um, it's not crass, it's just. It's a real kind of pleasure to watch. It's it's wonderful. Like I think they kiss at the end, and that's like oh, yeah. <laughs> that's 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 the woo bit. Yeah, yeah. that's the very exciting moment that we've been building up <laughs> the, the entire movie from a distance as well. You don't even like. Oh yeah, no. it's it's very in in that way. It's very Jane Austen. Yes, it is. Um, but yeah, I I really do enjoy that. It I, is. Um, what have I? I kind of want to say one, but I've only really just started it, so I don't know whether I can give it like a full stamp of approval yet. But I'm actually reading a book called Frankenstein in Baghdad, which I would love to. Maybe once I read that and The Bloody Habit, I can do like a summary of uh, like new versions nice. of those gothic novels. Um, but if we're talking about one that I'm actually a good bit of the way through, I am almost, after two months of listening, I'm almost halfway through the audiobook of The Count of Monte Cristo. Wow. Um, uh, it's 52 hours long and I'm not actually, I don't have a long commute so it I kind of struggle with the longer books but I am really enjoying it and it'll be interesting to see for me. I'd, I actually, for one of those really, really famous stories that everyone seems to know, The Count of Monte Cristo, I really didn't know anything about. I knew it was a revenge plot and I knew mm -hmm. there was something about prison but that was literally it. So, I'm I'm really excited to see where it goes because it's one of the few times with most kind of classic novels mm -hmm. I may not have read them but I'll know the kind of story arc yeah um, but this one I really don't know where it's going um, and I'm really excited to find out but I see I've still 27 more hours to go so I don't know whether I'll have it finished anytime soon but I am really enjoying it awesome brilliant and I think it's time to round up I will say that we are recording this on the 3rd of January, which mm -hmm. means that it is Tolkien's birthday. <gasps> so I would recommend everyone go, I don't know, read some of The Hobbit or, you know, watch some Lord of the Rings or anything that you like. But, you know. I've still got my Tolkien's Letters to Father Christmas out on the dresser so that's, we could have a little dip into that's that. That's an excellent, excellent idea. I'm hoping to have this podcast up shortly. Obviously, it won't actually be out on his birthday. But um, whatever day you're listening to it, it's, it's a special talking day for us, so go for it. Hey! Um, <laughs> and other than that, I think the only thing left to say is goodbye! Bye!
This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.